You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My grandfather would defend the fact that he only spoke English by saying that he could drive for 12 hours in the four cardinal directions and not find himself in a place where they weren't speaking English. Little did he know, he was actually speaking French, Spanish, even Danish. And you are, too. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. English is the third most widely used language in the world, behind Mandarin and Spanish, with about one in seven people worldwide able to speak it. There are about 375 million native speakers and about 220 million more people who use it as their second language. It's often used in work and travel, making it the most international language in the world. Like all things, English has changed and developed over time. Though it began as a German language, many words are taken from Latin and French. The grammar is not particularly Germanic, but neither is it like that of the Romance languages. The Romance languages, as you may remember from high school, things like French, Italian, Spanish, and Romanian, come from the far western reaches of the Roman Empire, where people spoke common or vulgar Latin. As the name suggests, the English language began in England. Germanic tribes, the Saxons, the Angles, from which we get the word English, and the Jutes, came to Britain around 440 AD, pushing out the Celtic Britons, or making them speak English instead of their old Celtic languages. Some of those Celtic languages, like Welsh, Irish Gaelic, and Scottish Gaelic, are still clinging on today. The Germanic dialects of the invading tribes became what is now called Old English. Old English did not sound or look much like the English that's spoken today. If a time machine dropped you off back then, and you didn't immediately kill them with disease, you'd be unlikely to understand more than a few words anyone spoke. Many other peoples would come to England at different times, speaking different languages, and these languages added more words to make today's English. Around 800 CE, Danish and Norse pirates, called Vikings, came to the country in establishing the Dane Law. Bonus fact real quick, not all Nordic people were Vikings. Technically, not even the Vikings. The word Viking is a verb, to leave one's home for adventure and fortune, and those who did it were Vikingers. The vast majority of the population were farmers and tradespeople, just like in every other country at the time. So English got many Norse loanwords from these northern Germanic languages. I'll dive deep into loanwords shortly, though of course, shortly is how I do everything. When William the Conqueror took over England in 1066, he brought his nobles, who spoke Norman, a language closely related to French. 
English changed a lot from that point because all official documents were written in Norman French. English borrowed many words from Norman at that time and also began to drop word endings that they used to use. This was now Middle English, the period of Geoffrey Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales. If a time machine dropped you off here and they didn't immediately kill you with disease, you'd be able to pick out a few more words that you recognized. English continued to take new words from other languages, mainly from French, as much as 40% of its words, but also Chinese, Hindi, Urdu, Japanese, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, you name it. Scientists and scholars from different countries and cultures needed to talk to one another, so they named things in the language they all knew, Greek and Latin. Those words were absorbed into everyday English, things like photograph, Photo meaning light, and graph meaning picture or writing, a picture made of light. So English is made out of Old English, Danish, Norse, French, and has been changed by Latin, Greek, Chinese, Hindi, Japanese, Dutch, and Spanish, and other languages. Simple. As the vocabulary swelled, English grammar slimmed down and simplified. The classic example is the loss of case in grammar. Case means the role of a noun, adjective, or pronoun in a sentence. In Latin, with its nominative, dative, genitive, etc., this is done by adding suffixes, whereas English just uses context. If you're wondering where Shakespearean English falls in this timeline, that's considered early modern English. Apart from words we don't use anymore, and ones that have completely changed their meaning, Early modern English sounded different because of the Great Vowel Shift. This was the gradual change in the pronunciation of long vowels, moving them from the front of the mouth to the back over the course of a century or so. House used to be hoose. One was own. Plead was pled, and so forth. Check out the great Native Lang video linked in the show notes for more. If I forget to put the link in, or your listening app doesn't support HTML, give me a holler on Facebook or Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, or Twitter.com slash brainonfactspod. So if your time machine let you out here, you'd probably get by about as well as you did reading Shakespeare in high school. English doesn't borrow from other languages. English follows other languages down dark alleys, knocks them down, and goes through their pockets looking for loose grammar. Our language sucks up words from other languages like a vacuum. For example, over 1,700 words are shared between English and French. It's the exact same word in both languages. Loan words are adopted from one language and incorporated into another without translation. They simply become part of the lexicon. English has also lent words to other languages, especially in the modern technological era, with things like email, computer, and mobile. But it's not a new phenomenon, and it's not just technology. For example, after Friday, the French enjoy le weekend. The word loanword itself is borrowed from another language. It's a calque, or loan translation. The examples of words in English borrowed from French, German, Spanish, and Italian are numerous. This is hardly surprising due to the close geographical ties that the countries, and therefore the languages, traditionally share. 
But these close relations are by no means the only languages that have contributed words. For example, ski and smorgasbord arrive from Scandinavia. Icon and vodka come from Russia. And avatar, karma, and yoga are Sanskrit words. German has given us words of many types, but food words are probably the largest category. Nachtwurst, liverwurst, noodle, pumpernickel, sauerkraut, pretzel, and lager. There are also sciency type words like feldspar, quartz, and hex. It's even lent us the names of some dogs, not only the obvious dachshund, but also poodle, which I would have laid money was French. A great deal more German words came over during the last century, what with those pesky world wars and all. That's where we got Blitzkrieg, Zeppelin, Strafe, and U-Boat. But also another round of food words like Delicatessen, Hamburger, Frankfurter, and Wiener, Bunt, as in cake, Spritz, as in cookies, and Strudel. And let's not forget about Kindergarten for the children, and Oktoberfest for the adults. Remember, a proper Oktoberfest is always celebrated in September. German had actually been the second most common language in the U.S. for a time. It was so prevalent in some parts of the country that entire city governments operated in and school systems taught exclusively in German. That was prior to World War I. When the war started, official use of German was quickly removed. You have the Dutch to thank for many of the nautical terms you've heard in your lifetime. Avast, buoy, bow, commodore, dock, keel, cruise, reef, skipper, smuggle, tackle, and yacht are all Dutch words. Even words like freight, scoop, leak, scour, splice, and pump. It almost sounds like I'm doing my old words that sound dirty but aren't shtick. If you work with fabric, you may have used duck fabric, made sure that the nap of the cloth was going the right way, and you've certainly had your spool run out at a bad time. The mother tongue of Van Gogh has also given us easel, etching, landscape, and sketch. War pops up yet again in the form of holster, furlough, onslaught, and others. So let's go back to food, where Dutch gave English the words booze, brandy, coleslaw, which I assumed was German, cookie, cranberry, gin, hops, and waffle. The terms Dutch treat, meaning everyone pays for themselves, and Dutch courage, meaning a quick shot of something hard to drink, are not only not lone phrases, they're actually old-timey sarcastic insults. So let's try to stop using them if we can. How much Hindi do you know? A lot more than you think. Let's say you wake up in your bungalow with its chintz curtains. Get out of your pajamas and into your dungarees and a fetching bandana, cause you're all about that thug life. Up until you realize you forgot to shampoo your hair 
and no one put away the punch from the party last night. But you're fierce. You're a juggernaut. You hop on your train to the city for your day in the concrete jungle. Speaking to African languages as a broad group, which they are, English has taken the words banana, banjo, chigger, which are nasty little tick-like things, goober, what they used to call peanuts, gorilla, gumbo, jazz, jitterbug, juke, as in box, and that's a K, it's not a jute box, voodoo, yam, and zombie. Lumping another vast and diverse group of people's languages into one paragraph are the loan words from North American natives. There are hundreds, or even thousands, of place names that use the original word of the people who were driven out of them. Ottawa, Toronto, Saskatchewan, which boasts a town called Moose Jaw, no joke, and the names of more than half of the states in the U.S., including Michigan, Texas, Nebraska, and Illinois, which I had thought was French. The city of Detroit is French, though. It means the Narrows. Native language also gave us food words like avocado, chocolate, squash, pecan, or pecan, potato, tomato, chili, and cannibal. Sort of. You heard about that in this year's Halloween episode, Cannibal, the podcast. There are also animal names like chipmunk, woodchuck, possum, moose, and skunk, as well as canoe, toboggan, moccasin, hammock, hurricane, tobacco, and the turtles known as terrapins. A brief aside for one word in particular, squaw. Some of you may have cringed when you heard it. Oh no, you say to yourself, Moxie doesn't know that squaw is a slur, like calling a Roma person a gypsy. It's not really true, though. Now, first and foremost, regardless of what a word is, where it came from, or what it meant originally, if you're using that word as an insult, it's an insult. And there are those who use the word squaw to demean Native American women. Now, that aside, people believe that squaw is inherently insulting because it comes from the Mohawk, ojisqua, a vulgar word for the female genitalia. This is highly unlikely, since in the Algonquin language family, the languages of the tribes that Europeans interacted with before the Mohawk, squaw simply means woman or young woman in certain dialects. It is in no way pejorative and was even used in missionary translations of the Bible. It can be seen in this context in writings dating back to the 1600s. There's a push by some to reclaim the word and remove the stigma. As one Abenaki woman writes, When our languages are perceived as dirty words, we and our grandchildren are in grave danger of losing our self-respect. The full article that was taken from will be on the website if you'd like to read more. Speaking of people speaking up for what they believe, but not really, I just needed a segue. Let's go back to the reviews. We got one from Murderific, who says, My brain is full now. If you like learning new facts on the go, this podcast is for you. 
Moxie has a lovely speaking voice, and you can also tell that she is super into her info. I learned a lot in her banned books episode, and it makes me want to run out and read some of the books that have been banned through the ages. Side note, I also learned that there is a picture of side boob in one of the Where's Waldo books. Keep it up, Moxie. I love it. Oh, and I love you, Murderific. And yes, there is side boob in a Where's Waldo book. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode makes me excited for two reasons. First, the topic was voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. All patrons, regardless of contribution level, get to vote on an episode topic once a month. Secondly, I get to talk about Yiddish. I freaking love Yiddish. You should use as many Yiddish words as you possibly can, and you're probably using more than you think. Let's start the explanation of what Yiddish is by telling you what it is not. Yiddish is not Hebrew. Though they are both historically used by Jews, they are not the same language. They do share an alphabet that contains no capital letters and is read from right to left, though. The reason the two are often linked in people's minds is that Yiddish speakers usually learn to read Hebrew in childhood, since holy texts and prayers were written in classical Hebrew. But that form of Hebrew is very different from the modern Hebrew spoken today in Israel, which few Yiddish speakers would be able to understand. Linguistically, Yiddish and Hebrew are as different from one another as Japanese is from Chinese. Yiddish is, however, quite similar to German, which makes sense since both are Germanic languages. The word Yiddish is the Yiddish word for Jewish, so it would be technically correct to refer to someone speaking Yiddish as speaking Jewish. But the average person is likely to misinterpret that, so probably better not to. You can think of Yiddish as the international language of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe, 
who typically spoke it in addition to the dominant language of their area. It's generally believed that Yiddish became a language of its own sometime between 900 and 1100 CE, but it was primarily a spoken language rather than a written one. At its height less than a century ago, Yiddish was understood by an estimated 11 million of the world's 18 million Jews. Now, due largely to World War II, three times more people speak Hebrew than Yiddish. Less than a quarter million people in the United States speak Yiddish, about half of them living in Texas. Just kidding, it's New York. Where else was it going to be? In recent years, Yiddish has experienced a resurgence and is now being taught at universities, and there are Yiddish studies departments at Columbia and Oxford, among others. Yiddish is referred to as a mamalashen, a mother tongue. It isn't entirely clear whether this term is one of affection or derision. The mamalashen was the language of women and children, as opposed to the lashen koidish, the holy tongue of Hebrew studied exclusively by men. Unlike English, Yiddish is a gendered language, and the gender of the noun alters other words around it. For example, the word for the changes to der Yingle when talking about a boy who is masculine, die Mama, the mother, feminine, das Kind, the child, which is neutral. Plurals also change the definite article, as in die Kinder, the children. Where English generally sticks with s or es to make plurals, Yiddish uses n or en as in schulen and noodlen, er as in kinder or hazer, s and es as in fishers and zedas, ekh as in stettelech, and im as in kvarium. Did you need all that minutia? No. Did I include it because I wanted to speak more Yiddish? Absolutely. Now let's get to the Yiddish you're speaking without even knowing it. It's nearly December when this episode comes out, so I'll quote a line from near the end of the Bill Murray classic, Scrooged. The Jews have a great word, schmuck. I was a schmuck. Now, I'm not a schmuck. Schmuck is a word for the male member, as is putz, schwanz, and schlong. You use one of those to stup. If you think I'm being too bold, you might give me a slap on the tukus. What can I say? I've got a lot of chutzpah. And it kills me to hear people say it chutzpah. Oy vey. When you see the ch, give it the ch. Mazel tov. Now you sound like a real mensch. We should go out for a drink and a nosh. Maybe a bagel and a schmear. Can you pay, though? I'm flat broke this week. I got bubkiss. Oh, and can we drive? The coffee shop is a bit of a schlep. I mean, it's nice. I had a meeting there when I was trying to schmooze a new client. I go through my whole spiel. I'm super nervous because he's not reacting. And I'm thinking, I'm such a yutz. I said the wrong thing. Finally, he says, yeah, I like your shtick. I could have plotzed. I don't think I could work at a coffee shop, though. I'd be spilling drinks all over people. I'm such a klutz. Plus, you hear those coffee mavens talking about this one's Indonesian, this one's Sumatra. It all tastes like burnt water to me. Oh, come here, Bubbola. You have a little schmutz on your face. There you go. Can we swing through a gift shop or something? I need to get a little tchotchke from my booby. Not too expensive, but, you know, nothing too schlocky. 
gifts for her 90th birthday. She likes schmaltzy things like Hummel figures and big-eyed kid paintings. Though that Meshuggah cat of hers likes to go through her mishmash of figurines and knock them off the mantle one by one. He looks at you while he's doing it, the nudnik. It's not kosher. And like a schnook, Bubby just buys more stuff for him to break. I'd give him such a spritz. There are more, of course. Ayenta is a gossipy woman, particularly an old one. Softig means an appealingly plump figure. I couldn't work that into the story, unfortunately. Glitch is also Yiddish, though it originally meant a slip-up. Ah, it would have been geschmack if I had gotten them all in. There are a lot of schlemiels, schvendricks, and schlubs in the world, but you know where you won't find one? In the exalted ranks of our Patreon patrons. So big thanks to Charlie, Council of Geeks, Michael K., Nathan, Adam Baum, and Seth for helping to keep the show running. Every donation is appreciated. And if you don't feel like you want to commit to an ongoing donation, I don't mind that at all. What, I'm going to get picky? You will also soon find a PayPal donate button on the website yourbrainonfacts.com. If we can reach $50 a month, that will cover all of my out-of-pocket expenses in producing the podcast. Another bonus fact before we leave the Yiddishkeit, the intro to the classic TV show Laverne and Shirley begins Schlemiel, Schlemazel, Hassenpfeffer Incorporated. Schlemazel means a quarrel or a fight. Hassenpfeffer isn't Yiddish. It's a type of German stew, usually rabbit. I'm going to break out one of my favorite jokes. A rabbi walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The barman says, where did you get that? The parrot says, Brooklyn, there are hundreds of them. If you've been binging your brain on facts, first of all, welcome and thanks for listening. Secondly, you'll notice an incidental, accidental theme when I announce the next topic. Polari. Now, Polari isn't technically a language. It's a cant, a cryptolect, also sometimes called an anti-language. It's a system of slang based on the speaker's native language used only by a select group. For gay men in Britain before 1967, Polari wasn't just cute jargon like Pig Latin. It was absolutely necessary. Being gay, or even being perceived as gay, could land you in prison. In fact, gay culture was so repressed that newspapers would barely even report on gay people who were arrested for gross indecency. It was taboo to write or even speak the words gay or homosexual. Gay people needed a way to communicate about their relationships and the other aspects of their lives without being understood by eavesdroppers. Polari came about as a form of insider slang built from many different languages, shifting and changing as it evolved. Language professor Paul Baker summed Polari up in his 2002 book Polari, the Lost Language of Gay Men. It was a lingo of fast put-downs, ironic self-parody, and theatrical exaggeration. Is there any wonder I love it? Although Polari saw the height of its popularity in the mid-20th century, its roots are much older. A similar argot called Parliari 
was spoken in markets and fairgrounds at least as early as the 18th century, made up partly of Romany words, with selections from thieves' slang and backslang, words that are spelled and spoken backwards, such as yob for boy and ria for hair. As its use spread, it picked up pieces of French, Yiddish, Italian, Shelta, the language of the Irish travelers, London slang, and Cockney rhyming slang, among others. Let me divert for a second to explain Cockney rhyming slang, that's the slang of the working class of London that didn't just replace one word with a different word, but with an entire phrase, then shortened that phrase. For example, the word for telephone is dog. The first step is to rhyme something with telephone, which was the phrase dog and bone. Telephone became dog and bone. But that's a bit wordy, so two-thirds of it was dropped. Likewise, feet became plates, through the phrase plates of meat, and stairs became apples through apples and pears. There's actually an ATM somewhere in the East End where one of the language options is Cockney rhyming slang. Also incorporated into Polari by way of the theater was the broken Italian used by street puppeteers who put on Punch and Judy shows. Examples of punch talk recorded as early as the 1850s include Manjari for food, Bivari for drink, and Lenti for bed. Even the name Polari itself is an anglicization of an Italian word, parlare, to speak. The lexical mishmash that was parliari was used on the streets of England, as well as fairgrounds, circuses, fish markets, and the British Merchant Navy. Polari isn't especially easy to research. Language is fluid and ever-changing to begin with, and a system of slang used for protection and rarely written down, even more so. There's no definitive glossary, and there are a wide variety of spellings. Even the name itself is spelled in a dozen different ways. So take anything you read or hear about Polari with a grain of salt, including this podcast. To complicate things further, some say there are actually two separate mutations of Polari within London. The East End version, which involves more Cockney rhyming slang, and the simplified West End version. Although there was a lot of overlap between the two, it's said that folks in the East End interacted with dock workers and sailors who added words from foreign languages, and the West Enders relied more heavily on theater slang. In addition to being useful for discussing intimate business, Polari could also be used to determine if someone else was gay. You just drop a few words into a conversation to see if they pick up what you're putting down. If not, no harm done. As such, the Polari vocabulary evolved to include a large number of racy terms so that people could talk about hooking up without blowing their cover. Trade is a gay sex partner. TBH stands for to be had, which describes that that person is sexually available, what we call today DTF. In Polari, an Omi is a man and a woman is a Dona or a Poloni. An Omi Poloni, therefore, is an effeminate man, or sometimes just a gay one. If you flip it around, a Poloni Omi is a lesbian. It wasn't until the 1960s that Polari started to become more widely known, thanks in large part to the BBC radio comedy Round the Horn, 
which you heard about in episode 42, Panto to Python, The History of British Comedy. The characters Julian and Sandy peppered their scripts with Polari. Round the Horn was unusual in that it was a program on a mainstream station with two main characters who were more or less out of the closet, in a time and place where it was illegal to be out of the closet. After several years on the air, many of Julian and Sandy's terms made their way into everyday speech in the UK, such as Vada, to see or to look, and Bona, for good. One term in particular, NAF, meaning bad, has proven to have real staying power. I suspect the average person who uses it doesn't realize it was an acronym for not available for fornication. Round the Horn blew the secret by taking the language mainstream, at the same time homosexuality was decriminalized, quickly negating and deflating the use of Polari. In his book, Baker writes that many gay men under the age of 30 have never heard of it. Arguably, the best-known Polari word is drag, referring to women's clothing when worn by men, possibly stemming from a Romani word for skirt. Where there's drag, someone is going to zhuzh something up. That's Polari as well. An effeminate gay man is a bit camp, and he may mince when he walks. A masculine man, or masculine anything for that matter, is butch. Does he have a nice bod? That's Polari too. Here are a few example phrases to help you pick up your Polari. Can I trawl around your lally? means can I have a look around your house. It's a fun crowd, but naff handbag. It's a fun crowd, but bad money. Can't you zhuzh that nanti shaiko, love? Can't you fix that bad wig? And the best well-known Polari sentence of all, How bona to varder your dolly old eek. How good to see your dear old face. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In February 2017, a trainee priest of the Church of England thought a great way of preserving Polari would be to conduct a church service in it. It was not well received. Old Testament sayings like, Rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, was translated to, Rend your thump in chest and not your frocks, and turn unto the Duchess your Gloria, for she is bona and merciful. And in place of the traditional, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the prayer was offered as, fabulous to the auntie, to the Omi Chavi, and to the fabulosa fairy. It went over about as well as you'd expect. A spokesperson for the Church of England said, I fully recognize that the contents of the service are at variance with the doctrine and teachings of the Church of England, and that is hugely regrettable and I have spoken at length to those involved in organizing the service to ensure this will never happen again. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And thanks for putting up with breathiness or hoarseness you may have heard in this episode. I am receiving treatment for my asthma. The doctor just changed my medication. It takes about a month to take effect. <laughs>